Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, first of all, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And then we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and 11, verses 17 through 34. So here in Leviticus 10, we hear about Nadab and Abihu. These were sons of Aaron. They were priests of God. And here we see that they offer up unauthorized sacrifices and God judges them for that. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, we'll also hear how God instructs us regarding, um, in part, how we are to eat and drink outside of corporate worship and then how we are to eat and drink inside of corporate worship. And now, uh, just wait a few moments, you'll see how these things connect. Um, but beginning here in Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, now please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This verse comes in the context of Paul's instruction regarding Christian freedom and meat that had previously been offered up to pagan idols. Can we eat such meat? Can we eat such or drink such wine that had been used in pagan festivals? This is the concluding verse to that discussion. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. The Apostle Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now turn a couple pages over to chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. The Apostle Paul continues and says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to drink and eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, now please turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we will not be reading from the Belgian Confession. We'll actually be reading a question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. This morning we'll be confessing together question and answer 96, which is in connection to the second commandment, whereby God forbids us from making images that seek to represent him. As always, I will read the question if you would please respond by reciting the answer. Question 96 asks, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless the hearing and, more importantly, the preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the book of creation, which is indeed that most elegant book in which all creatures are like characters and signs and words that point to your existence, your divinity, your power, your glory, and your justice. But in this moment, O oh Lord, we thank you most of all that you've revealed yourself to us in Holy Scripture. And we thank you that through your providence you have preserved these scriptures that we can be here in this moment and hear and learn and inwardly digest them for our edification and growth. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us in this endeavor. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, even though we are taking a break from our ordinary series in the Belgic Confession, boys and girls, you are not off the hook, so we still have our questions. Uh, I mentioned this morning that the two most foundational habits that we are to do as Christians involve our hearts and our mouths. God made us with hearts and mouths. He made us with hearts and mouths intentionally. And so what does God call us to do with those hearts and with those mouths? Noel? Believe in the heart and confess with the mouth. Very good. Very good. And uh, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that God is what? God is what? Yes? 
Single, simple, simple and spiritual. Yes, we believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths that God is single, simple, and spiritual. How is this single, simple, and spiritual God revealed? How do we come to know that this single, simple, and spiritual God exists? Yes. Creation and scripture. God reveals himself in creation, in the mountains, in, in the rain, in the, in the water, in the sea. But he also reveals himself in scripture. And in scripture, he reveals his plan of salvation. Now, what is scripture? What is his second mode of revelation? Yes, Marcus. Oh. Yes, very good. Very good. Uh, scripture is inspired, it's authoritative, and it is sufficient. Well, God, uh, he creates, right? That's, that's that first mode of revelation. Is creation, um, what is God's creation? What is God's creation? Does God create everything out of nothing or out of something? Out of nothing or out of something? Isaiah? Out of nothing, yes, creation ex nihilo. God doesn't just create and leave things to chance. He is also the God of providence. What is providence? Providence. What is providence? Ezekiel? Exactly. Exactly. God governs all things. He doesn't leave it up to chance. Now, after God created, um, he made us as human beings in his image and likeness, um, and Adam and Eve sinned, and we sometimes call this original sin. What is original sin? What is original sin? Anyone remember what original sin is? Yes, Matthias. Yes, in Adam's sin, sin we all. Very good. Our sin problem began in the garden. In sin, my mother conceived me, David says. Um, well, the last several weeks, we've, we've entered the grace section of, of the Belgian Confession. That's God's response to um, sin. And uh, when we think about election and reprobation, what attributes are those connected to? Election, reprobation. Marcus. His mercy and his justice. Very good. And then we also considered that God, God displays his mercy by making a covenant of what? A covenant of what? A covenant of, uh, uh, Annabelle? Grace. grace. Yes, a covenant of grace that unfolds throughout scripture. Um, and then last week we considered the incarnation. The incarnation that Jesus took upon himself a real human body. Uh, and soul. A real human nature. Well, uh, we are taking a break from, from our Belgian Confession, and I mentioned earlier this morning that um, starting next week, I, Lord willing, will not be wearing this, but a robe or a gown, which is sometimes referred to as a Genevan gown. And the, the reason why it's referred to as a Genevan gown is because pastors, reform pastors, in the Reformation wore these plain black gowns, which were distinguished from Roman Catholic vestments. And Geneva was the center of the Reformed movement, hence these robes took on the name Genevan gowns. Now you're probably asking yourself at this point, why? <laughs> why in the world are, are we making this decision? Again, this is the decision, the consistory, but why are we making this, this decision? For some of us, this 
when you see a pastor in a gown or robe or investments, you think of the Roman Catholic Church. You think of a false church. You think of all of this tradition that's been piled up over centuries. For some of you, when you see a gown or a robe on a pastor, you think of Protestant liberalism. There are many mainline Presbyterian, Methodist, and Lutheran churches that are completely, have completely abandoned the Bible, but their pastors will still wear the traditional clerical garb. For others of you, it just seems weird. It seems strange. Why in the world is my pastor wearing that? A fellow URC pastor a while back wrote an article on this topic and titled it, Why Does My Pastor Look Like Harry Potter? And that might be where we're at. It just seems weird. Well, I would like to attempt to answer the why question that you all might be feeling in this moment. Why are we making this shift? Why are we making this change? We as a church, we as a consistory, are not trying to be superstitious in this change. We are not becoming Catholic, Roman Catholic. Um, and we're also... Uh, you know, we're also not trying to identify with mainline Protestant liberalism. We're doing this out of conviction, and it's my desire to, to share with you what that conviction is. And so as we, um, as we begin this series, and again, this will be a four-part series, so we're going to spend this Sunday and then the next three Sundays uh, trying to answer this why question. And today, as we uh, approach this topic of ministerial attire, which means uh, what do pastors wear during corporate worship? I'd like us to think about this topic through the category of purposeful freedom. Purposeful freedom. So as we think about this topic of ministerial attire, we should do so through the lens of the category purposeful freedom. What this means is that what I wear on Sundays and what the pastor and the church down the road wears on Sundays is an area of freedom. God has nowhere in Scripture blessed the suit and tie or the jeans and the polo shirt or the clerical vestments. This is an area of freedom. But we are called to be purposeful as we as a church decide what eyes a pastor wear during corporate worship on Sunday. So we should think about this issue through the lens of the category of purposeful freedom. Therefore, this morning, I'd like us to do two things. So first, we'll consider what the Bible has to say about worship, about corporate worship, and as we consider what the Bible has to say about corporate worship, Lord willing, we will see how a pastor's clothing during corporate worship is an issue of freedom. So that's point number one. And point number two, we'll consider how we are called to be purposeful as we make decisions within these areas of freedom. So again, first we're going to consider what the Bible has to say about worship, and as we do so, we will, Lord willing, see how ministerial attire is an issue of freedom, and then second of all, we'll consider how we are called to be purposeful within these areas of freedom. So first, what is God's will for us during corporate worship? How does God want us to worship? In order to answer that question, we need to be familiar with two very important principles. The first principle has to do directly with corporate worship. 
in corporate worship, we need explicit biblical authorization for everything that we do. In corporate worship, we need explicit biblical authorization for everything that we do. We only do what is commanded. If God is silent on an issue that we want to bring into corporate worship, we must not do it. We need explicit biblical authorization for every part of our worship service. We see this principle established in the second commandment. We confessed this principle in Heidelberg Catechism 96. Question 96 asks, what is God's will for you in the the second commandment? That we must not make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word. So the first principle has to do with corporate worship. We only do what is commanded. Now the second principle has to do with life outside of corporate worship. The rest of the week. The rest of the week is not governed by that first principle. Indeed, it would be impossible to live your life if you needed explicit biblical authorization for everything that you did. Let me break it to you. God has not told you what you should eat for breakfast tomorrow morning. God has not told you how you should spend your next day off. Of course, when it comes to life outside of corporate worship, we seek to obey God's commands. But on issues where God's word is silent, that doesn't mean that we can't do it. We just avoid what is forbidden and use wisdom. That's a radically different principle, avoiding what is forbidden and using wisdom. So these are the two principles that we need to be familiar with. There's a principle for corporate worship, and there's a principle for life outside of corporate worship. Now, where do we see these principles at play in the Bible? Well, first of all, in the second commandment. So boys and girls, what question does the second commandment answer? Do you remember what question the second commandment answers, Marcus? The how how question. Yes, the first commandment answers the what question. We are to worship God alone. The second commandment answers the how question. How do we worship the one true God? The second commandment is stated negatively. Don't worship him through images. Or more broadly, don't worship him according to your imagination or your preferences. As I said earlier this morning during the reading of the law portion, when a commandment is stated negatively, the positive action is also implied. And so what is the positive action that's implicit here in the second commandment? Well, that we only do what is commanded in corporate worship. We worship him in no other way than he has commanded us in his word. We need explicit biblical authorization for how, when it comes to how we worship God. So that Second commandment establishes the principle. Leviticus 10 is an example of the principle at work. So again, in Leviticus 10, we come into contact with Nadab and Abihu, these two sons of Aaron who were themselves priests of God. And what do they do in Leviticus chapter 10? Well, they go into the temple, but this day they decide to offer to God unauthorized sacrifices. Again, not sacrifices that were explicitly forbidden, but sacrifices that God had not commanded. They were unauthorized. What is God's response to this? He kills them. 
God says, I will be sanctified. I will be glorified. My people and my priests are only to do in the temple what has been explicitly commanded. Now, of course, the the biblical record doesn't tell us, but uh, I think it's safe to assume that earlier that morning, Nadab and Abihu had eaten breakfast. God didn't tell them that they should uh, eat lentils over oats or dates over figs. They had to make a decision on that in absence of a command. And that was fine because they were outside the temple. Inside the temple, this regulative principle of worship of only doing what God has commanded applies. Outside the temple, they were free to use wisdom and avoid what has been forbidden. We'll fast forward to the New Testament. The New Testament equivalent of temple worship is Lord's Day corporate worship. So we should see an analogy between the priests doing their duties in the temple in the Old Testament and Lord's Day corporate worship. Moments like this. So in 1 Corinthians 10, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is discussing this issue of Christian freedom and specifically meat and wine that had previously been used during pagan festivals. Is it okay to eat this meat and this wine? I mean, it's been used for such unholy purposes. Paul's very clear in the preceding verses here that a Christian's conscience is not bound to um, not partake of this meat and this drink. However, he does say that a Christian should not partake if it's going to cause another brother or sister to stumble. Now, Paul's concluding verse to this section of, again, Christian freedom and meat and and wine that had been used in in pagan festivals is verse 31, a very well-known verse. So then, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. You have freedom to make your own decision when it comes to what food you buy at the marketplace. That's Paul's point. As long as you're doing it for the glory of God, we have freedom. If you want to eat three meals a day of just meat, go for it. If you want to be a vegetarian, go for it. Paul is saying whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. Again, it's that principle of use wisdom, avoid what has been forbidden. Fast forward a bit to 1 Corinthians 11. During stated corporate worship services in which the Lord's Supper is being administered, you cannot eat and drink however you want. You don't have that freedom. In corporate worship, you only eat and drink according to God's direct command. That principle that we confessed in Heidelberg 96 applies in corporate worship. And that's why Paul's so adamant that they are to follow Christ's instructions when they gather together on the Lord's Day to partake of communion. So again, we see these two principles at play in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. There's a principle for eating and drinking outside of corporate worship, and then there's a principle for eating and drinking when it comes to corporate worship of God's people on the Lord's Day. Now, after hearing this, you might think, okay, that sounds good, but we do all sorts of things in corporate worship that, have, that don't have explicit biblical authorization. I mean, I'm using a microphone. Find me the chapter and verse where God authorizes the use of a microphone. We use a piano 
to accompany our singing. Again, find a chapter and verse in which a piano is commanded for corporate worship. You're sitting in pews right now instead of chairs. Try to find a chapter and verse where God commands the sitting in pews. You're not going to find one. Here we distinguish between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. And so the elements of worship are those things that make worship what it is. They are of the substance of worship. Without these things, you no longer really have worship. That, that regulative principle that we confess in Heidelberg 96, that we need explicit authorization for everything we do, only applies to the elements of worship. And so what are these elements? Well, the reading of God's word. The reading of God's word and the call to worship in the reading of the law, in the declaration of pardon, in the scripture reading, in the benediction, the preaching of God's word, praying, confessing our sins and praying for kings and all who are in high positions for the needs of, of our body here locally, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving offerings to the Lord for the advancement of the church here on earth. These are the elements of worship. We want to add an element to worship. We need explicit biblical authorization. And all these things that I mentioned have explicit biblical authorization. Now, what are the circumstances of worship? Well, the circumstances of worship are ultimately issues of freedom, issues that should not and do not affect the substance of worship, and uh, ultimately issues that God's word does not explicitly speak to. But things that we need to make decisions about if we are going to worship these circumstances of worship then are not governed by that regulative principle of worship. So they're an exception. So what are the circumstances of worship? Well, time. Why do we meet at 9.30? Well, for a whole host of reasons that do not have explicit biblical authorization. God doesn't tell us to meet at 9.30 as opposed to 10.30. God doesn't tell us that we should have our second catechism service at 11.15 as opposed to 6 p.m. Uh, these are circumstances of worship. Posture. Are you sitting or are you standing? Are you sitting in pews or are you sitting in chairs? Uh, do we have a piano? Do we have an organ or do we have a guitar? These are circumstances of worship. These are areas in which we have freedom to make decisions. These are issues in which we do not need explicit biblical authorization because there isn't explicit biblical authorization for whatever we do. And so the elements of worship are governed by that principle confessed in Heidelberg 96. But the circumstances of worship are exempt. And so let's, let's bring it back here to the topic at hand. Ministerial attire. What I wear during corporate worship services on the Lord's Day. Do you think that ministerial attire is an element of worship or a circumstance of worship? Is it more like the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Or is it more like time and place and posture? Well, it's more like the latter than the former. It's a circumstance of worship. This is an issue in which the church has freedom to make a decision without explicit biblical authorization. Ministerial attire is a circumstance and not element of worship. This means that as we are making this change, we are not saying that churches whose pastors wear a suit and tie are in sin or being unbiblical. 
And we hope that other churches whose pastors wear a suit and tie don't think that we are sinning or being unbiblical with, with our change on this issue to, to a Genevan gown. Again, it's an issue of freedom. And we have to recognize that and grant liberty to other churches who might make different decisions than we do. It's a circumstance of worship. Now, we are called to be purposeful as we, as a, a consistory, as a church, make decisions within the circumstances of worship. And so, for instance, we're not in this place, but imagine we had the opportunity to build a building, a church building, a sanctuary. And, uh, and uh, money is not an issue here. So we can, we can construct whatever kind of sanctuary we want. Now, of course, there's no blueprint for a sanctuary that's explicitly revealed in Scripture. But yet I hope, as we would be going through that process, we would, we would want a sanctuary that reflects what we believe is a Reformed church, what we believe about worship, what we believe about God, what we believe about the means of grace. Historically, the church has done this. Think about historic cathedrals. You walk into a cathedral, and immediately you're met with this towering nave which communicates the transcendence of God. It communicates that worship is not a flippant experience. It's a reverent experience. It's an awe-inspiring experience. Historic Protestant churches oftentimes had raised pulpits, which again symbolizes that we are underneath the authority of the word. It symbolizes that the pastor is an ambassador of God, and thus he comes not with his word, but with God's word. Think of another circumstance. Posture. You may have noticed, sometimes during worship you're sitting, other times you're standing. Why? Well, standing is a posture of respect. So there are times during our worship service where you stand when the word of God is read, the call to worship, the declaration of pardon. We are demonstrating our respect to the word of God. Other times you sit. You sit during the sermon. Why do you sit during the sermon? Well, there may be pragmatic reasons here, but um, it also symbolizes how we are called to sit under God's word, how we are called to be discipled by God's word, fed and nourished by God's word. And so again, all of these circumstances which, which seem kind of indifferent, we are called to be purposeful as we make decisions about these various circumstances of worship. And so if we we're called to be purposeful about all these other circumstances of worship, well, then we also should be purposeful as we think about ministerial attire. What pastors wear during corporate worship. Now, what do I mean by purposeful? Well, I mean we are to make decisions that best reflect and represent what we believe. What we believe as a Reformed church. What we believe about worship. What we believe about the office of pastor. What we believe about the means of grace. So let me ask you, what is your preference when it comes to ministerial attire? What is your preference? Some of you may wish that I would be more casual. I'd show up in jeans and a casual shirt. Some of you may prefer that I, I, I wear my, uh, my nicely constructed suits that my, largely my wife picks out for me. Um, some of you may appreciate the gown, this transition. But what is your preference? Think about it. What is your preference for what your pastor wears during corporate worship? Now, why is that your preference? 
Is it merely because it's what you're used to? It's what you grew up with? It, what seems to be culturally accommodating? Why is that your preference? Or is it because it faithfully represents and reflects what we believe as a Reformed church about worship, about means, the means of grace, and about the office of pastor? Think about that. Have discussions this week with your family about what your preference is for what I wear. Why is it your preference? Is there any substance to that preference, or is it merely what you're used to, what you grew up with, what uh, seems accommodating at our current cultural moment? Well, it is our belief as a consistory that, that the gown best represents, best reflects what we believe as a Reformed church what we believe about worship, what we believe about the means of grace, what we believe about the office of pastor. And so the next three weeks, I will be reflecting with you what the gown represents. And so next week, we're going to consider how the gown represents our Catholicity. We belong to a historic Christian church. And that, in part, is what the gown represents. We're not a new church. Yes, we're only five or six years old, but we're a historically rooted church. The gown represents also not my individual personality, but the office, my office as pastor. The gown represents not the individuality of a man, but the office, the office of a pastor. I mean, all of you guys know Elder Witt. You know him as your elder. You know him as someone who goes to your church you may know that he's from Alabama. He has the southern twang. He loves Auburn. But if your child needed to go to the ICU, you'd have a radically different experience with Elder Witt. In that moment, you wouldn't care a whole lot that he goes to your church, that he's from Alabama, that he likes Auburn. What you would care is that, is, is that, whether, is that he's a competent doctor who's able to care for your child. You care about his office. And so in a similar way, the gown represents not my individual personality, likes and dislikes. The, office, the, the gown represents the office, the office of pastor, which is ultimately what we're here about on the Lord's Day during times of corporate worship. The gown also represents our deepest held beliefs about worship. It represents that worship is a reverent moment. Again, what, whatever the pastor wears in any church sets the mood for that church service. So if you walk into a church service and the pastor is wearing jeans and a polo shirt, that immediately tells you that this is going to be a very casual experience. When you walk into a church service and you see a pastor in a suit and tie, that tells you this is going to be a very formal experience. When you walk into a church in which the pastor is wearing a gown, that should communicate to you that this is going to be a reverent experience where the pastor is functioning not as a private individual, but is heralding the word of God, administering the sacraments which Christ has given to her church. And so those are the three things that we're going to focus our attention upon. And as we consider these, these three aspects of what the gown represents, hopefully we'll see how, how purposeful this move is. It reflects who we are and what we believe.